and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 28. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by the nation's favourite shed-dwelling polemicist, Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, St. Gary Lineker's brave struggle, new information on January 6th, and Peter Hitchens triggers the libs by claiming the Nazis were left-wing, lol. Plus our top stories of the week, and no doubt, peak woke. So, Toby, let's start. We have to start with St. Gary. Massive story for some reason that has gripped the nation. And I've written a piece about it for the Daily Skeptic, which I have to say was one of my best ever, which has had some incredible responses. Even got praise from the mighty Simon Evans. That's very, very rare. And you can check that out on Daily Skeptic. I think I called it the absurd celebrity meltdown over Gary Lineker, which was sort of my angle. I was basically saying there's an impartiality question. There's the fact that we we have to pay the license fee makes it not a pure free speech question. I don't particularly mind if he keeps his job or not, or if someone else has to say, Leicester's defence looked a bit ropey there, Alan. You know, that was my thing. But but what was, was absurd was the ridiculous meltdown, the idea that everyone is a scab who goes on the BBC. Amy Nichol used the word scab. Scab was trending. I mean, uh, Danny Baker called, called him a, anyone who goes on an effing collaborator. Owen Jones said it was a powerful victory for strike action. I mean, it's hard to talk about it without laughing. Gary Lineker has become the unlikely hero the unlikely working class hero it's so ridiculous this this just massively overpaid idiot basically but um and brenda o'neill's done another piece on it he already had a good piece on it he has another piece where he he said the wrongness of these takes seems almost pathological to me which is how i felt especially in my football whatsapp group where people were just calling the government fascist and all this kind of absolute madness and idiocy he said it isn't freedom they're defending at all it's the further institutionalization of their own correct think of their illiberal ideologies. Their true aim is not to defend freedom of speech or public broadcasting, but to further elevate what they view as correct thought as so faithfully embodied in the anti-Brexit, anti-Tory, anti-Gammon worldview of Mr. Lineker. A cancellation has occurred. There's no doubt about that. Not of Gaz, though, of you. So he sort of says the people have been cancelled and that there's so much pressure now for the BBC to not actually be neutral and actually just to represent the kind of metro, liberal, safe view. But what was your take, Toby? Yeah, I think that's an interesting take that it was, in fact, a kind of woke victory disguised as a victory for free speech. Um, it was slightly I found it slightly tricky to navigate because um, the free speech union evidently had to take a position. And it was and we were you know, constantly being asked what our position was by Gary sympathizers who believe the free speech union yeah who, who think the free speech union will only defend right of center people who get into trouble and not left of center people who get into trouble and um i mean i think in the past we've certainly defended a lot of people um not all of them right of center but most of them right of center who've got into difficulty uh, because of something they've said which is perfectly lawful outside the workplace but which uh, someone one of their colleagues has complained about um uh, so, you know, I was inclined to defend him, but um, we are campaigning for a change to the law, uh, an amendment to the Employment Act 2019 um, to better protect uh, workers' speech, particularly outside the workplace. And we have we did consider quite carefully whether our rules should be, you know, if 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 somebody says something outside the workplace, then it's really none of their boss's business and they shouldn't be penalized for it. Um, but we think that's a little too purist. I mean, you can imagine circumstances in which an employer, I think, can legitimately object to something an employee has said outside the workplace if it really damages um, 
the business model of the company. You know, if Gary Lineker said outside the workplace, um, don't watch Match of the Day, it's rubbish, all my colleagues know nothing about football, watch BT Sport instead. Instead of giving your license fee to the BBC, stop watching the BBC, don't receive any live television signals, subscribe to BT Sport instead. It's just a much better service if you're a football fan. I think the BBC could legitimately complain and penalise you know, their highest paid contractor, who is Mr. BBC Football, for saying something like that. So I don't think you can object to any interference in Gary Lineker's free speech outside the workplace by appealing to the principle that he said it outside the workplace and therefore it's none of the BBC's business, which was the principle almost all his defenders were appealing to, even though very few of them have defended anyone who's got into trouble for saying anything remotely right of centre outside the workplace. Um, So our standard is, I think, that um, employees should be given a much more latitude than they're generally given when saying things outside the workplace. But there are limited circumstances in which an employer can legitimately um, interfere with the free speech of employees and contractors outside the workplace. But in order to do so, in order to justify any interference, they have to be able to show tangible harm. So financial loss, for instance. So then the question arises, well, will Gary's remarks about the government's illegal migration bill have caused the BBC financial loss? And I suppose you could argue that some conservatives who support the bill uh, will now stop paying the license fee because they're so incensed by what Gary tweeted. Um, You might also argue, I suppose, that this feels more of a stretch, that because he said something that's really antagonized the government, because he's criticized the government and compared the language in the bill to the language used in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, um, he's made the government more likely to... um, Uh, not renew the BBC's Royal Charter, or if they do renew it, insist that they reduce the licence fee and in that way has caused financial loss to his boss, the BBC. But generally, I think that um, I think uh, what Gary Lineker said does fall on the right side of the line, as in, I don't think the BBC can legitimately object to him saying what he said outside the workplace. It's not related to what he does for the BBC, um, it may cause it may cause the BBC tangible harm. But you know, it's possible that some people may be more likely to pay the license fee. And if a Labour government comes to power, which looks likely by the time the BBC's charter comes up for renewal, they be met, they may now be more likely to renew the charter and say, "Charge what you like for the license fee." If Gary Lineker's working for you. We love you. Anyway, so um, I think one issue which. Um, which, uh, which is important. And I think a lot of people hadn't grasped is whenever when people were saying, where's the free speech union on this? Why haven't you said something? In fact, we did say things. We said numerous things. Um, uh, why, why don't you object to Gary Lineker being cancelled? You objected to Jeremy Clarkson being cancelled. Is it because Jeremy Clarkson's conservative and Gary's a liberal? You're a hypocrite. But actually, Gary Lineker wasn't cancelled. The BBC didn't punish him. I mean, they said he, he's going to have to step aside from presenting match of the day until we've agreed, you know, what the social media policy is that applies to contractors like Gary. But that's not really a punishment, is it? It's more kind of a process. Um, and uh, so it seemed a bit premature to jump in and kind of condemn the BBC for not defending Gary Lineker's free speech. I mean, we need to take a look at what the BBC's social media policy is going to be with respect to contractors. And I think actually, there is a really interesting opportunity here. And I'm quite glad that we took this 
nuanced position and didn't outright support Gary and condemn the BBC. Um, because now there's an opportunity for the Free Speech Union to contribute to this review. So the way in which it's been resolved, and I'm sure most people know, is that Gary is now going to be back presenting Match of the Day next week. And um, the BBC has agreed to review its social media policy, both with respect to employees and contractors, but particularly with respect to contractors. And Gary has agreed not to tweet anything politically contentious until such time as the new policy has been agreed. And this review is now taking place. And it's a really, a really fantastic opportunity for the Free Speech Union to contribute to this review. And I'm, I'm going to uh, hopefully we can uh, and say what we think the BBC's social media policy should be, not just with respect to contractors, but to employees as well. And one thing I think we will ask for, and who knows, you know, might get, and it would be, I think, a huge victory if we can get it, is to say one rule should be that employees and contractors of the BBC cannot be investigated for anything they've said, which is more than 12 months old. So a statute of limitations on offence archaeology. And the hope would be that if we can persuade the BBC to embrace that principle, other companies, particularly companies in the public sector, will embrace that principle as well. It will become a kind of precedent, which is then followed across the board when companies are devising their social media policies. I think that would be a huge step forward. It would just put an end to all the offence archaeology, which you know, people, particularly people do on you know football players and cricketers trying to dig up things they've said when they were teenagers and trying to get them cancelled for it. It's one of the primary kind of resources of outrage mobs to trawl through everything someone said or written dating back to when they were teenagers to try and find something to be outraged or offended by to try and then get them cancelled. If you can put a statute of limitations on that, like there is for libel, you can't sue someone for libel if what they've said is more than 12 months old. Same principle should apply to what people can be investigated for in the workplace. And if we can establish that principle by contributing to this BBC review uh, of its social media policy, that would be a huge win. All right. Quite a lot there. I mean, the idea of whether you can say things that damage your company, like go and watch BT instead. I mean, this seems to me quite reasonable. Everyone shouts at you, of course, oh, I thought you were Mr. Free Speech and people were misrepresenting my position. You hadn't read my article and saying, oh, you get upset about free speech on here all the time. And I had to use the Mission Impossible line. You've never seen me very upset. It's like, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> tweeting. You're just, <laughs> when I get upset, you'll know about it. But they always say that people like you and me, oh, Mr. Free Speech, where are you now? Where are you? And my position is always more nuanced. For example, I don't attack GB news colleagues. And it, it takes me extraordinary patience sometimes to do this because some of them say some mad stuff. But I very, very rarely will have a pop-up on them. On, on, I've done it once or twice, then regretted it and usually deleted it and felt bad. So I don't want to attack my colleagues. So I think that's like, if GB said to me, can you not attack your colleagues on Twitter? I wouldn't find that personally particularly bad. I know people will probably be shouting at me, oh, that's not free speech. Nick. I just find in the, in the real world, that's just an employer who'd rather you didn't do that. I find that quite normal. And I do, but of course, you could say it is a free speech issue. I mean, and perhaps you could say I could still do it. It's just the kind of thing I might not do out of politeness and respect for colleagues where possible, unless they're being absolute. To, I mean, there might be a line where you have to do it. But I don't find that to be particularly a problem. If the BBC say to Gary Lineker, could you not maybe compare the sitting government to the Nazis. I find that to be such a reasonable thing, especially when you're taking a license fee from people who you openly despise. You know, that, as you, you mentioned, like, they might say, of course, you, yes, as you say, other people will like it. But I find that impartiality quite a reasonable aspect, especially the BBC, because GB News, it would be up to me because there is no license fee, but, and it's just my personal decorum. But 
with the BBC, the license fee to me does change it to where you do have a certain responsibility to be neutral. Whether it's whether it goes onto your Twitter account, like I say, people can debate. I'm not going to be here saying he has to be cancelled and sacked. I'm just going to say it was an awful thing. It was an idiotic, gross thing to say. And that's, yeah, maybe that's fine. I'd rather he didn't. But yeah, I'm not going to say he should definitely be cancelled. But it's, and it's interesting, he's doubled down, hasn't he? He's basically won. And he's doubled down in his recent tweet thread and, and said, oh, it's great that we're still mainly a country of tolerant people, blah, blah, blah. Just still this sort of view that only those are the nice people. Gary's the nice people. Everyone else is awful. But yeah, what, I mean, I'm not going to say he should definitely be sacked or something. What did you think to the... I shared a few theories in my article. One was... I mean, mainly my articles are just so I can have make fun sentences when, like, when I said that um, all his colleagues were now mass migrating away from the show on small boats for imaginary virtue. People like that. This is why I write, really, to do, write phrases like that. But what was the motivation? Was it high-status virtue signaling to just say... I've got these opinions and I'm part of the, the in-group, right? Was it that he's ready to do a mate list, as I call it, and just go to LBC and say the opinions we all knew he had all along and he just thinks the BBC, are, he's too big for the BBC? Or was it this tax theory that The Guardian actually raised where, where according to sort of a lawyer, he can argue that he's not subject to the same level of control as the BBC employees, given his apparent freedom to express personal and political views on social media. So it's a kind of hilarious circular argument where because he's got this 4.9 million outstanding tax bill, it's like, yes, he only has that if he's an employee. But if I'm freelance, guys, which I must be because I'm tweeting this awful stuff, then 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 I don't then you shouldn't have the tax bill. That's quite an interesting theory. Any comment on any of that? Yeah, I think the third theory is the, the most plausible. Um, I mean, I think it, it actually does matter um, that Gary should be able to show to HMRC as part of his defense um, against, you know, this having to pay this tax bill, that um, he isn't employee. And the proof that he's not an employee is he's not bound by the same social media policies that BBC's employees are. And the fact that he's essentially got away with it, um, because the BBC have had to admit that actually, because he's not an employee, he isn't bound by the same rules, um, I think has has been, a, you know, probably very helpful in the context of this dispute with HMRC and there's five million pounds at stake. Um, going back to what you said earlier, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's an int- I mean, I think, I think it, it, we're both GB News contractors. So in our own way, you know, our relationship with GB News is similar to Gary Lineker's relationship with the BBC, albeit we're not not, not quite as well paid. Right. Um, and of course, we're supposed to say Nazi things, right? We actually are contractually obliged to <laughs> be far right online. That's the tricky thing. Well, I think I think the the, the um, GB News is, you know, bound by Ofcom's rules. Um, and there are some impartiality requirements in there. Uh, I think it, it might be tricky for a GB News news presenter someone who actually reads out the news on GB News to say what Gary Lineker said. But um, people, I think, misunderstand how exacting Ofcom's impartiality rules are. And I've done the GB News Ofcom course now. So I now know this. And one of the things I learned on that course is that um, uh, personalities like us, you know, people who appear on GB News shows, even though they may have a kind of news focus, we may be discussing current affairs, whether humorously on headliners or, you know, uh, seriously on Tubes and Co. Um, uh, we're not obliged to be, we're not obliged ourselves to be impartial. The channel is obliged to, you know, have um, different points of view 
not just to not just have guests on those shows that just express one point of view. Um, but we're not obliged as contractors for GB News to not be you know, to not be politically contentious. We can do that. And I think the same applies to the BBC. And I think Ofcom have actually spoken up today to say that, no, Gary Lineker isn't breaking Ofcom's impartiality rules um, by saying what he said. Um, I guess because it's a sort of grey area because he's not exactly, you know, um, someone who's who's wheeled onto the BBC to express his politically contentious opinions. Um, he's a presenter, but he's not exactly a news presenter. So I think it falls into a slightly grey area. But anyway, Ofcom think that he isn't bound by impartiality rules. I mean, people I think think that because the BBC is funded by the by the license fee and everyone has to pay the license fee if they watch TV on pain of imprisonment, um, that makes a difference. You know, he shouldn't, as you said, um, say things which antagonise you know, half the people who are paying his salary, particularly as he's the BBC's, you know, highest paid contractor. Um, but I'm not sure, how would that differ from saying, well, people who work in the public sector, in the civil service, for instance, um, shouldn't be able to um, express their political views outside the workplace. To me, it feels a kind of similar to that. And I'm not sure I'd want to defend that rule. Yeah, I think you said it to me the other day. Yeah, it could be a slippery slope of anyone in public can't tweet something. I mean, of course, a lot of people don't. I mean, teachers don't. There are many areas where people are very careful about what they say publicly, for better or worse, possibly for worse. But if, some some teachers do. <laughs> yeah, that's true as well. If you're a public-facing person on a very high salary that's paid for by the people, it, I think you know it probably comes down to a question of taste, doesn't it? If you had a little bit of, of decorum, if you had a little bit of respect for people, you perhaps wouldn't be, and you were paid that much. If it was me, I would tone down how partisan I was on Twitter out of respect for the people paying a license fee. That would be my approach. But that would probably just be a personal taste thing. And if you are a Gary Lineker and you're arrogant and a bit thick, perhaps you, perhaps it's just taste. And he, so he wants to, I mean, I notice what we have now, and I notice it from my football group mainly. I hate to bring them into it, but basically anyone, anyone in sort of the North London or the media circles or the sort of lib circles, they just don't ever think that they could be wrong. I mean, the last thing I want to hear about is wh- why the government, led by a, a Hindu person, is the most lefty, net zero obsessed, woke appeasing government we've ever had. The idea that they're far right or fascist, and this is the kind of rubbish you have to listen to from these people, yeah, because they just have no shyness about expressing their view. I mean, that view is obviously incredibly offensive to me, but they just express it, and they just, they, and it's obviously partly it's offensive because it's so stupid, but. Obviously, I work, you know, I, I'm colleagues with Jacob Rees-Mogg. I mean, what, you're just going to call him fascist. I mean, maybe that's a problem for me. I mean, I'm not particularly bothered, but they assume their view is just the only good one. This is what Gary Lineker's done with his tweet. He's doubled down and said, it's great we're still in a nation where most people are talking. And he's basically said, if you don't agree with me, you're scum. And that's their position. That's what's so distasteful about it all to me. Uh, but that's not really the same as saying you should be sacked or that there should be some sort of law about it. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely see that, um, and it's it's um, it's abhorrent the way the woke enforce their dogma, their lines, is to come after people who deviate from them um, and try and get them cancelled. And this is kind of like a kind of it's like the reverse, it's like the the mirror strategy of that, isn't it? Instead of trying to get someone cancelled for deviating from woke orthodoxy, they're trying to get someone canonized for expressing it and making them literally uncancelable, even if they break all sorts of rules in the process. Um, it's like saying, it's another way of trying to encourage people to toe the line. Toe this line 
on the illegal migrants bill um and um uh, and you'll be uncancelable deviate from the line and you'll be cancelled that's sort of uh, it's a sort of double whammy a carrot and a stick to get people to toe the line um one of the things um about this is that uh, i think the reason the government um became so incensed by gary lineker's remarks isn't just because you know they dislike being compared to Nazis, which is understandable. I think they also believe that footballers pose a particular threat to the government. I think they, they in the same way that, um, you know, Marcus Rashford's <laughs> advocacy for <laughs> free school meals really put yeah. the government on the back foot, Boris on the back foot. Whenever, whenever, whenever a footballer kind of enters the political fray, the government just seemed to completely lose their shit you know they're terrified of footballers and i think it's i think it's partly because it's this sort of snobbish idea that you know um the kind of lumpen proletariat in the red wall constituencies listen to footballers you know and if a footballer says something because they kind of slavishly follow what footballers say um they'll they'll be unduly influenced by that in a way they wouldn't be if it was said by a Jacob Rees-Mogg or a Suella Braverman or even a Labour Party politician. Um, and I think that's probably, there's a, probably a degree, I mean, I don't suppose that's based on kind of focus group data. I imagine it's just pure snobbery, this idea that, you know, that uneducated people are likely to take the political thoughts of footballers more seriously than the political thoughts of professional politicians, which I'm sure is not true. Funny that, I hadn't thought of that. And they always lose. I mean, they lost so badly to Rashford. I mean, it was such an obvious loser taking on a young popular footballer about free school meals, even though he got a bit of stick that people say, focus on your game, which he is now and he's playing really well. But yeah, and they've lost They've lost another massive battle. Why don't they, maybe they're right to fear footballers now because they keep losing to them. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's precedent. But yeah, okay. I mean, there's so many things we could say about it. This, it's just a massive topic for some reason. It's sort of, it's it's, it's a sort of fault line, isn't it? Another fault line of, where you stand on the culture war, and I suppose the accusation is well, it, it, go on. So it, 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 the reason I think it's it's um, become such a talking point is because it it straddles two culture war fault lines. So the you know the small boats crisis is a culture war dividing line, you know, which gets which which is very polarizing, and then the BBC is another culture war dividing line. Should it be funded by the licence fees or not? So it straddles both of those issues. So, you know, it's uh, it's uh, an intersectional culture war issue. Good point. Some will say, you know, Andrew Neil was editor of The Spectator and there's all these other cases where people have got away with things. And it is true, the BBC perhaps haven't... It's very hard to completely neutrally enforce this impartiality rule. It, it, is, it is complicated. And Gary just doubled down. He said, we remain a country of predominantly tolerant, welcoming and generous people. So the idea is if you have concerns about illegal immigrants coming in and, you know, causing havoc in communities, that, that just makes you a scumbag. Of course, it's just which people you're more concerned about. Some people are more concerned about the working people of this country, perhaps, and other people are more concerned about people who want to come in from other countries. That, but yeah, Gary has to frame it that you're evil. I thought it was interesting as well that um, Alistair Campbell was weighing in and of course, his podcast is produced by Gary Lineker's company. And then Gary Lineker's retweeting Campbell's praise. And I called it a virtue signaling pyramid scheme because it's just, it's just so absurd. And now I see Gary has retweeted this podcast from, you know, it's Rory Stewart, isn't it? And Alistair Campbell, which is the podcast from hell. And it's, uh, they're interviewing Bernie Sanders and he's saying this one is exceptional. Isn't it weird? And I've mentioned this before in my 
piece for the Daily Skeptic, Confessions of a Conservative Rebel. I've mentioned it in my recent Gerlinica piece. It's just so weird how the the Metro Lib has become so far left in his in, in his kind of virtue signaling. It's so strange. They're sort of quite pragmatic on things like the economy often. But now Alistair Campbell's praising Bernie Sanders, and so is Gary Lineker. I mean, this millionaire, multi-millionaire, who gets paid this absurd amount. What is it? Eighty something license? How many? How many thousands of license fees is it? Someone, someone, someone did it, and they said how many. Wasn't it? Portillo did it, wasn't it? Wasn't it eight thousand? License fee pairs make up Gary's annual salary. I know it's one hundred and fifty nine pounds, isn't it? So it's I guess one point three million divided by one five nine. Someone can do the sums. Yeah, it, it's 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 a lot. So so you got all these people having to pay Gary Lineker's ridiculous fee, and at the same time he's out there praising Bernie Sanders, who himself, of course, famously is a millionaire. So he had to start criticizing billionaires instead of millionaires. Was the was the line on Sanders? But isn't it also absurd, Toby, this kind of, how has this happened? I mean, these kind of people, you talk to them, as I say in my piece, about liability-driven investments or something, they're perfectly sensible. If you talk to them about their area of expertise, but then they've said things to me like, Jacob Rees-Mogg should be in jail, or this guy in my football group saying the government's far-right and fascist. It's like, they're so divorced from reality, but also they're so extreme. But their lives are not that extreme. They live as sort of Blair, post-Blairite people, but they, they, they say these incredibly radical communist things now what is going on i think it's um i mean i guess it's partly because they um are inside these social media bubbles echo chambers so they rarely hear alternative points of view um i think it's also you know it's status signaling it's a way of advertising their membership of their high status group their tribe and uh, it's virtue signaling as well it's always been um a characteristic of the left um, that they think of their opponents as evil, whereas people on the right generally think of their opponents as merely wrong. Um, uh, and that, but that, that does seem to have kind of um, got worse um, as the political as political disputes have become more polarized. It's sort of you feel like it kind of started with Brexit and then it kind of accelerated during the pandemic. And now every issue, as far as the, you know, liberal left is concerned divides between divides people between good people and evil people and it's all very black and white um it is as you say kind of not just depressing but also slightly puzzling because the people engaging in these kind of wildly inappropriate comparisons um seem seem otherwise quite intelligent and kind of you know capable of appreciating nuance and subtlety and might well kind of point out a kind of, uh, you know, uh, an, a, a sort of subtle mistake in your own argument. But when it comes to embracing this kind of woke, catastrophizing, black and white agenda, they they just go all in without hesitating. Yeah, very strange. They get completely emotional on this issue. Where other, other issues, they're quite logical. It's, it's very strange. I'm just, I'm still trying to find out the, the exact number of people. I feel like it was like 8,000 or something. But anyway... I should have got that before the show. It would have been a good stat. But anyway, it takes all these people to pay Lineker's fee, but yet he's he's now a sort of a communist. And he, he won't be affected by anyone that comes into the country. So it's very it's infuriating, really. doesn't necessarily mean he should be sacked. And, um, oh, yeah, the, the only thing I didn't mention, you've got to check out his exchange with Douglas Murray, where Murray points out that one key difference between now and, and Nazi Germany is that you weren't showered with praise for criticizing the regime and Lineker's comeback was they didn't have social media in those days I mean the the level of a mind that (laughs) thinks that's an appropriate comeback I mean we have to we have to remember the time also dealing with someone who's quite thick 
<laughs> well, isn't this isn't this a source of some hope? You know, Gary has been canonized by the woke left um, and is now, you know, their poster boy. Um, but uh, isn't that a hostage to fortune? Because, you know, he said some pretty silly things in the past. He said a few silly things during this current dispute. He's bound to one day in the not too distant future say something really silly. And the silly thing he said in the past, I'm thinking of, I mean, he said many, but one of them was that um, he understood what it was like to be the victim of racism because he has olive skin. And at school, um, he was teased about it. So he he knows what it's like to be discriminated against because of the color of your skin. I mean, it was a kind of the kind of thing that if you were if you were, um, you know, a a white um, professor of humanities at Stanford would get you cancelled. You know, um, absolute kind of breach of kind of um, the woke speech code. To, for a white person to say they know what it's like to be black because they've got olive skin. I mean, it, 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 he would have did his. He would have been cancelled for it, but um, he got away with it. But he's bound to he's bound to trip up again in an even more embarrassing way in the I'm sure not very distant future. Yeah, uh, one he'll thing get I away to with say it. about um, he'll get away with it. Yeah, he will um, uh, because of course people on the left are granted much more latitude than people on the right. But um, we've actually published a piece in the Daily Skeptic today called "In Defense of Lineker's Tweet." And it's by this um, Jewish contributor called Andrew Barr, who set up Jews for Justice. He's an anti-lockdown campaigner during the lockdowns. And he says that he thinks it's, he makes the point that um, Gary wasn't comparing the treatment of illegal migrants or the proposed treatment under this bill to the Holocaust, which would have been appropriate and would have been trivializing the Holocaust. He was merely saying the language in this bill is similar to the language that was used to demonize not just Jews, but homosexuals and gypsies and so forth uh, during Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And he he makes that critical distinction and says that, you know, the Holocaust Memorial Trust, which incidentally has condemned Gary Lineker for making this analogy, it says on its website that the reason for teaching children, school children, about the Holocaust in Britain and elsewhere is so we don't repeat it. And that presumably means, um, you know, being vigilant to make sure that um, the kinds of practices which became common in Germany in the 1930s are nipped in the bud, lest they result in something um, equally appalling, another genocide in the future. And so, you know, it seemed to him to be uh, a bit of an overreaction by the Holocaust Memorial Trust to criticise Gary Lineker for comparing the language of the bill with the language used in Nazi Germany. It wasn't trivializing the Holocaust. And it was doing, albeit in a kind of cack-handed, misguided way, what the Holocaust Memorial Trust wants us to do and its reason for wanting school children to be taught about the Holocaust. Um, so uh, I thought that was a reasonably good argument. And of course, the way the argument is is more often used is to condemn people who are critics of the government's pandemic response um, for comparing the treatment of, say, people who refuse to get vaccinated to Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and the disabled in Nazi Germany. So if we're going to defend people who are accused of making an inappropriate analogy when condemning vaccine passports, then we should defend Gary for making this analogy this time. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I did quickly read that piece, and I noticed at the end he still pointed out where are these people during the actual taking away of our rights under the yes. lockdown. 
which was another good point. And I'm trying to find, I mean, uh, it's annoying when I'm just, most of the show is me looking for tweets, but um, Christian Nemitz had a good point, And a few people have made this point about this idea that Gary Lineker had to, oh, here we go. He says, it's a five-step thought process. Anyone can recognize a baddie who arrives with a big bang, but it takes a subtle and clever mind to recognize a sneaking baddie who disguises his true intentions until it's too late. Then obviously people want to appear to be the latter kind of mind. And then in order to signal that, I need my opponent to be a sneaking baddie, not a big bang baddie. But I also want my opponents to be like Hitler. So I have to pretend that Hitler was a subtle, cunning type of baddie. It's quite an interesting argument. He's saying they... They want to say all the time that Hitler was this creeping thing and therefore everything's like Hitler. But really, he's saying Hitler wasn't much like that. He was pretty open about what he thought pretty much the whole time, even if some people didn't believe him. So they have to kind of compare one to Hitler and claim that Hitler simultaneously was this this stealth kind of threat. It's interesting. I mean, they need to just stop, as one article I, I shared in The Daily Skeptic, they need to just stop calling everyone Hitler, really, as it is, would be the, the ideal. But that's apparently not going to happen anytime soon. Um, all right. Yeah. But like you say, he did. It was the language. Just, I mean, we should have probably started with this, but he said the mo- in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. Bit of a stretch to call Sweller Bravman someone who invokes Nazi language. That's pretty much what he was doing. I think we've probably done enough. That's probably yeah. about half an hour on Lineker. <laughs> it's quite a long, but it was a massive story that's taken over the whole country. Anyone in America yeah. just listening going, what? Soccer? What are they talking about? Like, they're thinking it's mental. But um, who is the, Who's the American equivalent of Gary Lineker? James Denningpole suggested O.J. Simpson, but <laughs> that might be a bit libelous. Some people said Kaepernick <laughs> in terms of the scandal, Colin Kaepernick when he kneeled. Maybe, yeah. But in terms of status, yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yeah, it'd be like, like if Tom Brady did this or something. Or, or I suppose yeah. maybe who's the basketball player who says a load of rubbish all the time? Uh, LeBron. Could be him. He yeah. kind of is like, like yeah. Gary Lineker. Probably LeBron. So the LeBron of, of the UK, Gary Lineker, that's the podcast title sorted. Um, this related story <laughs> as well with poor old Fiona Bruce. So Yasmin Alibi-Brown, who is kind of famous for talking absolute bollocks, <laughs> was uh, was making a point. Actually, though, it was a legitimate point because it was about the alleged history of Stanley Johnson's uh, you know domestic violence. And so she said it was on record. So Fiona Bruce... Being compelled by BBC impartiality, interrupted and said, I'm not disputing what you're saying, but just so everyone knows what this is referring to, Stanley Johnson's wife spoke to a journalist, Tom Bower, and she said that Stanley Johnson had broken her nose and that she ended up in hospital as a result. Stanley Johnson has not commented publicly on that. Friends of his have said it did happen, but it was a one-off. And now everyone said she's justifying domestic violence as opposed to being told by a producer, say something now or we'll get sued, which is what she's obviously doing if you have any clue about the media. And... um. Kate Osborne, Labour MP, have said that have accused of downplaying domestic violence. So has Farah Nazir, Chief Executive of Women's Aid. And she had to step back from her ambassador role at the charity Refuge. And she said, which was real sadness, mm. I decided to step back from my role. Isn't this absolutely mental, Toby? I mean, because the BBC are in the firing line, Fiona Bruce. I think her only mistake is that she's not that good at hosting Question Time. And it was a lot better when Dimbleby did it. So she might do things in a slightly clunky way. But she was just simply trying to maintain impartiality, probably not get the BBC sued. This was taken as a, as a, as a sort of a pro-domestic violence stance. And it was bizarre. I mean, um, I, when you look at the clip, um, it is, as you say, blindingly obvious to anyone who knows the first thing about television that she is um, just parroting what a producer has just whispered into her earpiece um, to limit the BBC's liability. Um, 
uh, in case Stanley Johnson wants to bring a defamation suit against them. Um, and uh, uh, to, to imagine that she was, you know, expressing her own opinion or defending Stanley Johnson because she wants to minimize domestic violence is just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it's typical, I suppose, of the way in which um, the left kind of try and push their hobby horses by uh, misinterpreting what people say, or rather interpreting what someone says in the least, in the most uncharitable way, um, uh, in order to kind of uh, make a point. Um, but it seemed, but I, I think she's a reasonably competent host of Question Time. I think she was better than I thought she was going to be. Um, and I think she does a reasonably good job. And I think she's reasonably impartial. Um, uh, and, um, you know, she couldn't refuse to say it if she's been told to say it for legal reasons, you know, by her producer. Uh, so I think she's been treated very unfairly. And it was actually, it was typically brutal of um, these kind of liberal lobbyists to kind of uh, persecute her in this way for saying it. Yeah, I thought that was disgusting. And um, what we have to realise, and we've probably already touched on it in the Lineker story, is that the left, of course, don't want impartiality I mean, this is no surprise to anyone, really, but they don't want such a thing as an impartial BBC. That's just quite an adult, old-fashioned idea. They just want all their views and everyone else to shut up. And any attempt at impartiality is mischaracterized as part of the, this culture war as a, as yeah, to mischaracterize that as a statement, as if Fiona Bruce is like pro-domestic. I mean, they just live in a total fantasy world to even begin to think that. It's like the fantasy world of thinking Rishi Sunak's Tories are fascists. They don't live in reality. It's just total browbeating. It's an attempt to crush your opponents into the dust. And in this case, the opponent, I suppose, is it's it's kind of like Stanley Johnson because he's associated with Boris Johnson, who's associated with the Tories. But it's more about crushing the idea of impartiality, the idea that you have to make a sensible adult statement to not get sued. They don't even want that. They just want the BBC to just be another propaganda arm of the of the leftist movement. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, you can you can I mean. You can almost imagine a kind of um, quite an amusing comedy sketch in which the BBC is as the left would like it to be. You know, um, Gary Lineker hosting every program, not just Match of the Day. Um, Yasmin Alibi Brown um, being the host of Question Time. Um, you know, nothing but left wing panelists, kind of Owen Jones and Ash Sarker and Angela Rayner and Yvette Cooper on every time question time is shown but i suppose in a way you'd be doing you'd be defending the bbc with this comedy sketch by implying that actually it does a reasonable job of maintaining impartiality at present well that's the bizarre world we're in isn't it we've, we've been sort of people have been sort of on our side so to speak have been defending the bbc against gary lineker and it's it just it's just it's just battle lines i've tried to not be like that with my i'm hoping my piece is a bit more subtle but it is basically that isn't it suddenly we we suddenly like lots of people on the so-called our side have been defending the bbc and everyone on the so-called other side have been defending Gary Lineker. And it's just, Gary Lineker basically is so annoying that we've ended up defending the BBC. That's, maybe, that, maybe that's a pincer <laughs> movement of some sort. They've tricked us. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, maybe, I, I, always, I always say this. I know people at work at the BBC, and they do make an effort to be impartial, but they just have these arrogant presenters who undermine them. Emily Maitlis is one. Gary Lineker is another. They may like Lineker. They may even be sort of striking in support of him or whatever. But a lot of them will not like what he's done. And they have no voice. Um, all right. Well, one quick sidebar on this. James O'Brien on his show, I think, uh, on Monday, um, he, 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 was, he was complaining about the fact that when he worked for Newsnight, I had complained about something he tweeted, pointing out that it revealed what his political views were. And he was clearly 
partisan and therefore unfit to be a Newsnight correspondent, which he then was. And he was complaining that higher ups in the BBC had had a word with the editor of Newsnight, who in turn had had a word with him and explained that higher ups were concerned about my tweet and asked him to rein it in a bit on social media. And James O'Brien was absolutely furious about having his wings clipped in this way. I have to say this is way before I became (laughs) the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. Um, And I don't think I would do that now. Um, But um, and he then went on to say, Toby Young is an absolutely ludicrous figure. Why would anyone take him seriously? I mean, it's it's just beggar's belief. Why would anyone book him or anyone from his ludicrous organisation to appear on the radio or on television? I just I can't understand it. And like literally an hour earlier, um, our director of legislative affairs had been on LBC on the Nick Ferrari show, but uh, I felt I sort of was tempted to, to to respond by tweeting that, and I thought, oh God, I'll just get involved in an endless exchange <laughs> of bad tempered tweets with James O'Brien, and life is too short. You're right, and th- those people have endless patience um, for Twitter threads. But I mean, if you think you're not serious, wait till he finds out you live in a shed. I mean, you know, it's going to get worse, Toby. Uh, we all know Toby's a very serious and important figure. Um, do you want to move on? Speaking of which, good link. Do you want to move on to the our very serious section on parliamentary affairs? Because we have some quite interesting, three interesting cases this week. And the first of them is Suella Bravman and the non-crime hate incidents. And uh, you've managed to sort of push back and, and do some good work in this area. Yes. Yeah, so um, the Free Speech Union has been campaigning against uh, the police's nasty habit of recording a non-crime hate incident against a person's name whenever anyone complains they've done something politically incorrect, basically. Um, It sounds like a kind of an Orwellian invention, but actually since 2014 when the College of Policing um, issued guidance saying, you know, if someone was... If they, if they if 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 someone was reported as having done something hateful, i.e., uh, uh, an act of hostility towards someone motivated by their possession of a protected characteristic, um, then that should always, in all circumstances, be recorded as a non-crime hate incident. And the thing about NCHIs is they can show up on enhanced DBS checks, um, and they so you know if one is recorded against your name. It's like having a black mark on your criminal record, even though what's been recorded is the fact that you haven't committed a crime rather than the fact that you have. And they're Um, not wiped, even if you're uh, a child, they're not wiped when you become an adult. No, I mean, that's one of the sinister things about them. And there's been 120,000 recorded since this idea came in. Well, I think more. Um, uh, The the Telegraph did did, did some FOI. They FOI'd, um, I think, all 41 police forces in England and Wales in 2019 to ask them how many NTHIs they'd recorded since the guidance had been published in 2014. And the answer came back 120,000, but only I think 34 of the 41 police forces responded. Um, So the actual number even then was higher because seven just didn't bother to respond to the FOI request. And that was in 2019. Uh, So if you extrapolate, if you assume that they were being recorded at the same scale by these seven other police forces and have continued to be recorded at the same scale since that takes you to above 250,000, um, which is pretty extraordinary. And you wonder why, you know, if you're burgled or your car's broken into and you report it to the police, they'll give you a crime reference number and that's it. It's because, you know, they're recording about 65 
on average 66 non-crime incidents per day. Do you think um, you could so record- no don't have time. Yeah, sorry. Just do you think you could yeah. record a burglary as a non-crime hate incident? Like he burst into my house with a you know with a knife and also misgendered me, and that could get it pushed up to the front of the queue a bit. Well, yeah, but I think uh, my advice to people, you know, uh, when talking about this, is to say, you know, if they come back home and find their house is burgled and all their most valuable possessions have been stolen, and the burglars have defecated on their living room carpet. Um, if you report that to the police, you'll get absolutely nowhere. No one's going to come around to your house. They don't give a fig. What you need to do is pick up a can of spray paint and spray trans women aren't women on your sitting room wall. And then you'll have a squad of seven officers around there in about 30 seconds, possibly even a police helicopter. Or just the words adult human female just sprayed on the wall. Of course, <laughs> one way around it is just live in a shed, Toby. Then you never have to, no one can break <laughs> into your house. Or you, you're not there. You come in from the shed, like oh, in a sort of flat outflank them. Come in with a weapon from the shed. <laughs> Sorry, I got about the shed. My it's just wife, in my head today. One of the reasons my wife doesn't like me sleeping in the shed is because she says, what if we're burgled? You know, who who will be there to protect us? And I was like, well, got four teenage, three teenage sons. Um, you're, you can look after yourself. I'm not sure I'd actually be any use um, if yeah. a burglar did. That's your in. counter. Even in the house, I wouldn't have been of use. So it's better if we just take yeah. me out of the situation entirely. <laughs> So I don't confuse the tactical situation. Focus on the, the three young men who are ready to fly. Okay. Um, sorry to derail this because it's very important. So you've managed to push back and get a new code of practice. Well, there's been a kind of lots of pro-free speech campaigners have been campaigning to rein in this habit of the police and to make it much more difficult for them uh, to uh, record incidents as non-crime hate incidents and then retain the data in such a way that it can show up on enhanced criminal records checks. And um, Harry Miller has been instrumental in this fight, ex-copper. He had an NCHI recorded against his name because a trans person complained when he tweeted a comic verse about trans women on Twitter, even though it wasn't directed at anyone in particular. Um, And he took Humberside Police and the College of Policing first to the High Court and then to the Court of Appeal. And the College of Policing did because he won those cases. And the Court of Appeal said, yes, you're right. This is an unlawful interference in your free speech. The College of Policing then revised its guidance about NCHIs, but not nearly, didn't do nearly enough. And uh, so Suella Braverman, she's been able to table this new code of practice. She's laid it before both houses of parliament. Uh, And the reason she's able to do that is because the Free Speech Union worked with various peers last year to secure an amendment to the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, whereby she has the option to bring forward a statutory instrument establishing a statutory code of practice, which uh, regarding the recording and retention of NCHIs. And she's done that. And it's everything we could have hoped for. It's fantastic. And, and one of the great things about one of the many great things about it is that it says to the police, if someone reports um, a child and accuses a child of having committed a hate incident, um, that cannot be recorded as an NCHI. The correct appropriate response is to refer the matter to the head teacher, um, uh, which is great. And I think one of the reasons that's in there is because what finally pushed Suella over the edge to issue this guidance was the recording of an NCHI against the four boys who were involved in that imbroglio over the bringing of the Quran into school in the Kettlethorpe High School in Wakefield. Um, I think everyone was shocked, but particularly Suella, by the police just indiscriminately recording that as, a, as an NCHI. And as you said earlier, 
they don't get spent when the child reaches the age of, age of majority. They hang around, unlike real crimes, um, which do get spent um, on your record. So, um, yeah, it's great. It's great that she's issued this advice, and it's um, a big victory for free speech campaigners. So, yeah, that was that was probably the best news of the week. Oh, good. I'm glad something's happened. I mean, the bias is always towards tyrannizing citizens, and you have to be someone like Harry Miller, an ex-cop who's very passionate about it and very knowledgeable about it to get anything done. And most people just have these things recorded and won't know what to do with them. So I'm glad that's that's gone through. The other big thing, I mean, I needed to brush up on this again, but this was a big thing last week. To what We just missed out in our last podcast. We were talking about it. It was about to go to vote. And this is the buffer zones bill or whatever it is that's, that's now rolled out nationally. I'm not great on the detail of bills as you are, Toby. But we talked about these buffer zones before. You, you, Isabel Vaughan's Bruce got arrested yet again. And the officer specifically said, despite what Twitter people claim to me, that the offence is praying. He said that was the offence. So she was praying in her head in a in a so-called buffer zone near an abortion clinic. And you can say what you like about, you know, it's intimidating to the women. I don't think it's intimidating at all to have Isabel Spruce just silently praying in her head, this very unintimidating person. I think that's kind of a disingenuous argument. But the idea that you, of course, I don't want, no one wants women harassed outside clinics, but the idea that you can't pray in your head in England is just absolutely insane. But this has now become a national law, as I understand it, from from this vote last week, Toby. Yes. And one of the numerous free speech objections to, it's an amendment to the public order bill, um, is that it's a slippery slope. Um, You know, once you establish the precedent that you can um, create a buffer zone around particular locations and arrest anyone protesting within that buffer zone, what's to say that it will be limited to abortion clinics? And this argument is not a straw man because um, in Ontario just last week, buffer zones have now been imposed around libraries where drag queen story hour is taking place to prevent people protesting outside the library against drag queen story hour. So clearly uh, in this country, I don't think for a second, you know, the Labour Party, um, once they form the next government, assuming they do, uh, will stop at just creating buffer zones around abortion clinics. Um, It'll be around numerous other events which are provoking angry protests from people on the other side of the aisle to them. Um, I'm resigned to this law entering the statute books and then being enforced. But I do think it's a breach of the European Convention of Human Rights and therefore contrary to the Human Rights Act. So I think in due course, it will be possible to challenge this law, particularly uh, prohibition on silent prayer within the buffer zones in Strasbourg, but it'll take a long time. And I think one one, one tactic that um, the authorities may use to avoid um, a successful challenge is that even when this becomes law, if someone like Isabel protests again by silently praying inside a buffer zone outside an abortion clinic, she'll be arrested, moved on, but they're not charged. It's only if she's charged, if she's prosecuted and the conviction is upheld, that it can then be challenged up the kind of chain uh, and eventually to Strasbourg. By the way, quick sidebar, another victory last week, which is worth um, mentioning. Um, so a an evangelical Christian street preacher called David McConnell um, was um, convicted of a public order offence for misgendering 
a trans woman. So he was preaching in um, Leeds city centre and a trans woman approached him and started heckling him. And in response, he started referring to the trans woman as him and as this gentleman. And the trans woman became more and more upset and the crowd took the trans woman's side and the police they claim to prevent you know an outbreak of civil disorder arrested him and led him away uh, but he was then charged with intentionally causing harassment alarm or distress and convicted in leeds magistrates court and the christian legal center appealed that conviction and i was an expert witness for the defense um, making the free speech argument and i submitted my witness statement. And I wasn't actually called because the judge um, uh, upheld the appeal before it was necessary to hear from me anyway. Uh, but that was a huge victory too. So um, if that conviction hadn't, if that conviction had stood, it would now effectively be against the law um, in, in, this, in, in England and Wales to misgender a trans person. Uh, but because that conviction um, hasn't been upheld because the appeal was successful, it isn't, at least not for the time being. So that was another big victory last week. More great work from Toby, tireless fighter for free speech. And yeah, I mean, they get these things through with unpopular, you know, by targeting unpopular causes. So people hate Christians, people hate the pro-life movement. And so, you know, and street preachers. So that, you know, Lots of people, even ostensibly vaguely on the free speech side, don't care about this issue, but it is an important free speech issue. And just to clarify, on the previous case, they said, you've said you're engaging in prayer, which is the offence, to which Isabel replied, silent prayer. The officer responded, you were still engaging in prayer, which is the offence. So, And yes, I acknowledge that if she was praying in her house, as I've said before, for now that wouldn't be a crime, but clearly it's a combination of being in the so-called buffer zone. But if you can't pray in your head in any street in England is obviously completely insane. And yeah, so, all right, two important cases there. And lastly, on this kind of section, Miriam Cates has taken a stand against the kind of insane sex education that's going on in schools, Toby. Yeah, so um, for my money, Miriam Cates has already won Backbencher of the Year, even though it's only March, because she's been a tireless campaigner against the use of age-inappropriate materials to... Uh, teach children about sex, sometimes children as young as four. Um, and she's assembled um, a, a huge Tutankhamun's tombs worth of inappropriate material that is used in schools all over England and Wales. And um, she, she's been petitioning the government to um, open inqu an inquiry into this, and in particular to make it easier for parents to see the materials their children are being taught. I mean, one of the scandalous things about this story is that schools have been stonewalling parents who've been asking to see exactly what it is their children are being taught in sex and relationship education, which incidentally isn't um, monitored by Ofsted. And schools have a, a good deal of latitude about what materials they use when teaching SRE, which is one of the reasons so much inappropriate material has crept in. Uh, but when parents ask to see it, they're often stonewalled by the schools who cite really spurious reasons for not disclosing it, such as, oh, it would be contrary to the commercial interests of our third party provider who's given us these materials, such as Stonewall, you know. Yeah, Stonewall um, being the right phrase, uh, Stonewall are literally involved. <laughs> yeah. So Rishi Sunak said last week, 
he is going to open an inquiry into this. And he does think it's ridiculous that parents cannot see what it is their children are being taught about sex in the classroom. Um, so huge victory for Miriam. And hopefully this will lead to a clampdown on the use of you know, some of this, some of these materials are very disturbing. Yeah, the people speaking to your young children saying, and don't tell your parents this, rarely the good guys, rarely the good guys. I mean, th- some of the things I saw when we covered this on Headliners was uh, there were the materials being given to students, uh, pupils as young as nine on allyship and gender, blah, 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 and all this stuff. I mean, allyship and queer, this and that. And then 12, age 12, kids were being taught that some people like rough sex. I'm like, sorry, why is a 12-year-old learning that? And it's just sick. And the, and the Ofsted, as far as I understand it, there was a minimum requirement to teach certain sex education things to kids, but there was no maximum. So schools were erring on the side of just pummeling them with loads of this garbage because they could actually be penalized with, by Ofsted otherwise. That was my understanding of it. Yeah, well, I think, I think Ofsted want to be involved, but I don't think Ofsted um, at the moment have jurisdiction over what's taught in SRE. But maybe one of the outputs of this inquiry will be that it should. And I think um, the head of Ofsted is, is broadly on, on our side on this issue. Okay. Um, uh, but, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, one dimension of this, which is troubling, um, is that a lot of the materials that are being taught to children, as you say, sometimes as young as nine, uh, in some cases younger, um, is informed by gender identity ideology. And it's taught as if it's fact. You know, these young children are told by these kind of smiley women, teachers standing in front of them, authority figures, um, that, you know, sex is a spectrum and many people identify as a different gender to the gender of their birth as though it's just completely uncontentious fact when in fact it's a highly contentious um ideology (laughs) um which and schools shouldn't be in the business of of indoctrinating their children with you know highly contentious ideology there is actually a law um the education act 1996 prohibits the promotion of partisan points of view to school children and says if you're going to introduce children to politically contentious points of view, they have to be taught in a balanced way, i.e. they have to hear both sides. But they never hear both sides of this issue. You know, it's like one issue is right and the other issue is wrong as far as these teachers are concerned. I mean, one argument against um, uh, children being taught about things like why rough sex or why, why, you know, why rough sex in the right circumstances, can be extremely fulfilling. Um, why, why, the argument as to why children should be taught this age 12 um, is that if they're not taught it in school by responsible grown-ups, um, they're going to learn about it by watching porn. And surely, you know, you might find some of this material disturbing and you might think it's age inappropriate, but let's be realistic. If they're not learning about it in school, they're learning about it on the internet uh, from YouPorn um, uh, or Pornhub. And, you know, um, but that's not a particularly great argument, is it? Because, you know, if if, if your 12-year-old is watching porn, you're not not doing a great job as a parent, you know, uh, and it's the parent's responsibility to stop their parents uh, being exposed to, you know, inappropriate sex via, you know, Pornhub at the age of 12. Uh, So I don't think that's like a slam dunk argument for teaching children about rough sex. Yeah, a couple of things I always think on that are, one, has our culture got more or less degenerate since we introduced more and more sex education? I'd say more. So it may not be totally causal, but it certainly hasn't reduced it that that I've noticed. And the other other is, um, 
it's kind of like the legalized drugs argument. Hey, they're going to be doing heroin anyway. It's like, well, are they less so than if it was legal? So yeah, I don't buy that argument. And also, and on the indoctrination, that's all schools do now, isn't it? I mean, nine starts at nine with allyship. When you're 12, it's sexual kinks. Then a little bit older, you get to learn about why Andrew Tate's evil and bad. <laughs> brainwashing is all that schools do. Yeah. Right, let me let me I'll ask you something quickly. Yeah. Um, where do you stand on sharenting? So I don't know if you if you if this has come up on headliners, but um, a bill is being discussed in France. I don't think it's been laid before Parliament yet, um, which would make it illegal for parents to post images of their children on social media channels like Instagram and Facebook. Um, and the idea is that children are being exploited by their parents in various ways, sometimes commercially, um, on social media. And it's a breach of their rights to their own image, the copyright in themselves, um, uh, and might come back to kind of damage them in later life and so forth. Do you think, would, would you support that bill or not? I don't, I don't know if it should be put into law because I generally... You know, I don't trust the state, especially the French state, but I think parents should be sensible about it, shouldn't they, and not necessarily put their kids out. You know, a lot of people block out the faces. That's probably an appropriate thing to do. Less so, I'd be more thinking of the kids' safety than their sort of future copyright or their future, what, cancellation that they've been in some videos or something. Is that the argument? Mm. I suppose that's one argument. I think, I think the argument more is that these children are being exploited in various ways without their consent by unscrupulous parents the thing i don't like about it protected from i don't like pe- people sharing loads of stuff over sharing online but i also hate the constant attack on the family and the state's constant encroachment into the family so i have to say i probably think they shouldn't mm. get involved it should be at the discretion of the parents what do you think yeah i think so too i think um obviously there are there are um children enjoy some rights that um should be sacrosanct um regardless of what their parents views are but I'm not sure their image rights fall into that basket. And I think if parents, you know, want to share images of their children on their social media channels, it does seem a bit draconian for the state to step in and say, no, you can't. I mean, maybe if the state was going to do it, it could say there could be a kind of cutoff whereby if your children are, are under 12, it's fine. But after that, Maybe you have to you have to you have to get their consent before you do it, and I think that's probably true in most families. In any event, I mean, my children are absolutely adamant that I cannot share any of their images um, without their consent on any of my social media channels. And rather irritatingly, Rachel Johnson told my children a couple of years ago that she'd come to an arrangement with her children, whereby whenever she writes about them in one of her columns, she has to pay them £75 <laughs> a time. And they, 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 my children, you could see their ears prick up. Um, and now they now they absolutely insist that if I include them in my, say, spectator column, I have to actually pay them. So, you know, um, it, it's not commercial exploitation, in in my case anyway. It's a tough negotiation <laughs> in which I'm exploited by my that's, children. That's more than a lot of people get for writing the column let alone sharing yeah, the, I know. it's absolutely as somebody that who writes and tries to make money of it that that's disgusting to me but a lot of these things are done in, in the name of empowering children and they're really about empowering the state and empowering the left it's like don't tell your parents because you're so empowered it's like no that's sinister i mean is it it's a battle isn't it the old way of like parents know best that's seen as the kind of the patriarchy and that's seen as victorian now i'm on that side i'm on the parents know best honor your father and mother it's in the ten commandments and the state should stay out of the family. That's my position. Go back to the Victorian mm. patriarchy. 
you want to move on to a completely different topic? Let's move on. Let's take a completely different left turn and do um, this topic of January 6th, which I've been doing some research into, but not loads. But what it is, these videos have been shared that, that paint a very different picture of January 6th. Not a different picture from what some of us thought, but a very different picture from what your average normie who thinks it was a deadly insurrection thinks. And we've seen people like the so-called QAnon shaman, who's the guy with the face paint, who Alex Jones claimed was schizophrenic. I don't know. I don't know. I heard that claim anyway. He's a guy who's been targeted a lot. And the videos show him being shown around by police very politely around the Capitol. They even try and open certain doors for him that are locked. He even thanks them in his speech that he made because he thinks they're just on his side and that they're helping him because they seem to be helping him. So this new footage has come out of that, which is very interesting. Other footage as well I've seen of a very strong, fit-looking guy dressed in sort of tactical, not tactical gear, something like that, kind of like the kind of gear that you'd expect someone who's a professional to be dressed in, with a mask, carefully taking out a window and then suggesting people go through it. Then another guy comes in who seems more of a genuine protester. He's like, no, no, don't go through that window. Then the first guy starts pushing him and claiming that someone else did the window, that he did the window, and pushing the guy and almost threatening to punch him. And he looks like he's very trained. Very suspicious. And there was also this guy, Ray Epps, who's been very suspicious. Oh, I need to look into more. But he's, he's the guy who was telling everyone, you know, let's, let's, we've got to go into the Capitol. And then people are like, why has this guy not been charged? And then the media did everything they could to defend him. And sort of, you know, the lefty media was like calling it a crazy conspiracy theory and that they should leave Ray Epps alone. So there's all these people. And it's been pointed out, this happened before in the Whitmer kidnapping case where people did infiltrate and they did get sort of, they did get people to act out more than, than they would have encouraged them to. And this seems to be a standard thing that happens. You know, happens these intelligence agencies go in and try and make it a bit more, try and, you know, get the protest going a bit more than it, than it otherwise would be. There were still people fighting police. No police died, despite what some people have claimed. Some police died later of suicide or stroke, but no one died Jan 6, but it's been kind of implied by, I think even Biden has implied it or even said it. Five citizens did die, and there was obviously some fights with the police. But what it looks like to me, Toby, as a layman, is that it's not not necessarily that it was nothing, that it was all completely rigged, but it looks as though there were agents in there encouraging it. That's how it looks to the layman. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's interesting that the footage of the protesters um, in the Capitol building um, often being led around by you know, tour guides, security officers, police officers, and behaving in a sort of calm and orderly way, looking much like, you know, ordinary tourists, uh, are very much at odds with the footage we've seen to date of kind of rioting mobs, breaking windows, throwing things, etc. But I, I don't think that it's proof that, you know, the protesters had been infiltrated by fifth columnists who were rioting in order to kind of uh, create the impression that they were a much more riotous mob than they really were in order to discredit Trump and his supporters. I think it's more likely that there was just, you know, there was just a lot of footage shot that day from a lot of different angles. And some of it can be um, edited to make it look as though it was a kind of full-blown insurrection. And other parts of it can be edited to make it look as though actually it was all very calm and orderly and nothing approaching an insurrection. I mean, I think I do think that um, for political reasons, um, 
the extent of the disorder was exaggerated by the left um, in order to discredit Trump, discredit his supporters, to justify the arrest of various people involved in that protest, and also to justify, you know, the growth of the censorship industrial complex. I mean, I knew at the time, and so it's proved to be, that um, the events on January the 6th would be used as a pretext by people in the disinformation industry to justify their censorship of so-called misinformation and disinformation on social media. Because look, guys, this is where it can lead to insurrection. It poses a grave danger to democracy itself. So we have to censor all this stuff, all this stuff on Twitter. Um, so yeah, um, I do think it was exaggerated. And the footage is is useful. The footage that's been released in the last couple of weeks is useful because it shows just how exaggerated it was. But I don't think it was. I don't think there were. I don't think it's proof that the whole thing was um, orchestrated by fifth columnists. Well, I'm not saying orchestrated, but I think I hate to sound like James Toby, but I think you're being pretty naive if you think <laughs> there weren't people in there in there trying to help it along because there seems to be an awful lot of that going on. Why was Ray Epps saying storm the Capitol, etc.? I think it's very dodgy. Um, and also, the way they've been treated is terrible. They've been left to languish in jail for years. It's often taken two years to get a trial. They just Their lives are over. It, treated completely differently from Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, etc., etc., which people are acknowledging now. I mean, pretty disgusting treatment. Obviously, it's dumb to storm the Capitol, but I, I don't know. I think they've been treated appallingly. Anyway, that's, that's my view on that. Um, do you want to quickly do a story you wanted to do, which is, a, I'm, I'm sure we'll go into that Jan 6 more as it unfolds, but We'll do a, a much sillier story now because uh, you, you wanted to do a story about Hugh Grant. It's not even a story, but he was interviewed at the Oscars and it was so awkward. Yeah, it's, it's gone uh, viral. It's gone viral. So, yeah, he was interviewed on the red carpet by um, a former model um, called Ashley James. And, um, and she asks him a series of fairly routine softball questions. And he's um, incredibly uncooperative. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he gives monosyllabic kind of one or two word answers, um, seems to ridicule her for, for, for the question she's asking him. Like at one point she says, you know, it must be great to be in a thriller like Glass Onion. Wasn't that a lot of fun to film? I mean, she's trying to think of the reason he's there. And the only reason she can think of is that he had a tiny cameo in Glass Onion as kind of, um, you know, the husband in a gay couple. Um, and, uh, and and he sort of looks at her disdainfully and said, I was only in it for an afternoon, as if to say, what a ridiculous question. How could you possibly think that I had fun doing an afternoon's work on this film, for which no doubt he got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and it's just, people have been celebrating it as kind of like, oh, isn't he great? He's sending up the kind of, you know, the shallowness and inanity of Hollywood showbiz. But actually, it just seems to me as though it's like a kind of a, a man in his 60s um, uh, being intolerant and kind of curmudgeonly and irritable when asked a question by a former 34-year-old model who he evidently considers his kind of social and intellectual inferior. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's kind of left me with a, a bad taste in my mouth, but not surprising because Hugh Grant is, of course, the enemy of press freedom. So how do you expect him to treat journalists? Yeah, funny you say a former 34-year-old model, she's no longer 34, I think she still is. But yeah, I mean... Oh, sorry, I mean... I mean 34-year-old yeah, former, former model. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very big on the details. Yeah, I mean... 
I basically agree with you, Toby. It was a ch- people have been celebrating it. It was a chance for something that would have been cool because the Oscars are incredibly stupid and pathetic. So he could have sent up the whole thing, much like Ricky Gervais does at the Golden Globes or something. He could have done it in a clever, funny way, but instead he did it a rude way. And I shudder when people are being rude to people who are sort of lower in the pecking order who have to do this job. I'm sure she's not that thrilled about having to stand there asking all these inane questions. He could have been, he didn't have to be so rude. It could have been funny. He could have done it in a way that brought her into it. Her questions were a bit dumb and wooden, but yeah, he didn't have to be so rude. And I just, I just, I can't stand that rudeness. And it's another thing. It's the Gary Lineker thing again. The kind of people that celebrate Gary Lineker also love Hugh Grant and pretend that these people are amazing. Whereas they're probably just kind of dicks, really. But hey, who knows? He may be a great guy. He may have had a bad day. Okay, now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones, editor of the Daily Skeptic, and we've got some important stories. Now the first one concerns Chris Whitty, who I think comes out slightly less bad than some people in the lockdown files, which is not saying that much, but this is that COVID was not deadly enough to justify the risk of a fast-track vaccine, which he told the government, Will. That's right, yeah. Well, he only comes out better in February 2020. I mean, we're not talking about throughout the lockdown files, but in February 2020, February the 9th, February the 29th, 2020, to be precise, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, uh, said that in his view, for a disease with a low, and he says for the sake of argument, 1% mortality, uh, that the va- a vaccine has to be very safe. So the safety studies can't be shortcut. So important for the long run. He means that vaccines are important for the long run, but they're not going to be an immediate or short-term fix for the problem. So good advice. And in fact, 1% is actually a pretty high mortality rate uh, and a high estimate uh, for COVID. Uh, the actual estimate for Europe and the Americas in the first wave by John Ioannidis, uh, he estimated it to be 0.3 to 0.4% uh, using antibody studies. And so uh, that is uh, significantly lower, th- about a third of the, uh, the value that he estimated. So even more important for them to be particularly safe. Why did Witty change his mind? We don't know. The lockdown files don't tell us. But uh, that was good advice at that point. But of course, this period, Nick, was the period when they were all playing it down, uh, or almost all of them. We can see that in the lockdown files, because uh, up until um, up until mid March, uh, there was a general view that they should stick to the plan. They should stick to the pre the, the pandemic preparedness plan that they already had. Uh, that they should carry on as normal in, uh, for as for as, for as far as possible, and that they should uh, be looking towards herd immunity. And that was the plan. And but as soon as they started talking about herd immunity in the middle of March, uh, then uh, there was a massive backlash, and we know what happened after that. So uh, good advice from Chris Whitty. Uh, don't know what happened to that good advice, and we know what happened after that. The vaccines became uh, rushed out and delivered to everyone, and a lot of safety issues have been clearly covered up. Yeah, and when I say Chris Whitty came out relatively well, this is on a scale where Matt Hancock is the worst. So the best is still incredibly bad. So it's the Hancock scale. Let's let's just be clear about that. Um, here's a story that infuriated me. China announces lockdown plans for the flu as the Washington Post tells Americans to prepare for the same. So they're getting us used to this idea of just locking down for flu, Will. Yeah, flu lockdowns are on the way. Yep, there's a, this, is a, this is a city in China. This is uh, Xi'an, if I'm saying that correctly. A uh, uh, city in China has uh, announced its... It's, it's set out its plans for what it's going to do in different situations 
for for viruses uh, with what the flu in particular and it says that if an outbreak of the common flu virus poses a severe threat quotes uh, then uh, it may enforce lockdowns quotes when necessary so and when necessary means when it is a severe threat this is very ominous indeed and it has not been told that this is wrong by the central Chinese government so this is clearly in line uh, with what Beijing thinks as well and to make things worse the Washington Post that bastion of liberal uh, thought has published a an opinion piece uh, by Joel uh, Ackenbach uh, who has said America shut down in response to COVID would we ever do it again and his clear answer is well we should uh, and he says that this is a quote an incalculable number of lives were likely saved by delaying what would have been the natural spread of the virus unbelievable that in 2023 a major American newspaper can publish that sentence. Uh, incredible that anyone still thinks that lockdowns have saved an incalculable, incalculable number of lives, and so clearly pushing for uh, lockdowns to be uh, to be considered as something to be used in the future. And he specifically says that there are more pathogens out there poised to spill into the human species. A novel strain of avian influenza. H5N1 has already already has seized the attention of scientists as a potential spillover hazard. So clearly, raising the the prospect, he doesn't he doesn't come out and say directly. I think that we are going to have to have lockdowns for the flu, but it is clearly what his article implies, and the Washington Post would have known that in publishing it. So uh, here we go again, as as they say, and uh, we need to watch out that. And of course, that's what we've got to see in the pandemic treaty that the World Health Organization is planning and the revisions to the international health regulations. There are plans afoot uh, to prepare for future pandemics, future threats, and according to the wording, potential threats. And the World Health Organization, if it sees a potential threat, will, uh, be, will be given the power under these measures that are proposed uh, to require under international law, we've talked about this before, uh, the countries to do all the things that we've been doing with uh, this in the last three years, lockdowns, vaccine mandates, mass mandates, or everything we've been doing, and they will be and they will be in the gift or, and the power of the of the World Health Organization. And here we see the uh, a city in China and the Washington Post preparing people for the idea that we are going to have to do these things all over again, and not even for any any novel virus just for a so-called severe threat of a common flu virus. Yeah, and one thing that was shocking was that they used the old man collapsed image from China, that 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 image from 2020 of a guy just collapsing on the floor due to this terrible virus, these totally discredited images. Shocking. Absolutely. And and the Washington Post adorned the this this alarmist article with this photograph um of as you say of of the man collapsed dead in the street in in Wuhan and with the one with the red the red shop front with the man on the, with a mask cycling cycling past classic fear porn image uh, that was used along with those videos to make it look like this virus was somehow striking people down in the streets in their in their droves in Wuhan um, and they reproduced it again but it's totally discredited i mean these things we know that that's not what the virus does the virus doesn't lay people out in the streets like that so why why reproduce that image called Fake news, folks. Um, let's do this one then. ONS admits vaccine effectiveness data are flawed. 
Yep, so uh, we've talked about the ONS da uh, data vaccine effect on uh, deaths by vaccination status in England. And uh, there was a new release this week uh, that uh, the blogger who calls himself the Naked Emperor, uh, don't write it into Google, and um, uh, and he wrote about the uh, the new release that specifically they uh, they were the ONS were using the data that we've already explained and lots we've already explained was was not good data anyway, but they've used it to actually estimate vaccine effectiveness to try to say how effective the vaccines are um, against against COVID, uh, but. The interesting thing is that they they also did an estimate of how effective the vaccines are against non-COVID death. Well, as you know, Nick, there is no reason at all why a COVID vaccine is going to help you and save you from non-COVID death. In fact, it's more likely to cause it because there are the so-called rare uh, side effects that uh, that the vaccines uh, produce. And so, but this data, they found that against non-COVID death, even after adjusting it for all the different all the different factors they could think of, and there were a lot, I mean, there's a list of like 20 uh, different factors they adjusted it for, they still found that the uh, that those who've had three doses of vaccine were 50% less likely to die of anything, not just COVID, of anything, um, non-COVID uh, causes. So that's, I mean, that's that's obviously nonsense. And, and in fact, the, the ONS uh, themselves said that we can assume that the non-COVID-19 risk of death should be similar to or close to zero if there is no residual confounding. And what that basically means is that they are admitting that there is a lot of residual confounding. That means that there's a lot that's meaning that their data is not reflecting the true difference between the vaccinated and the true effectiveness of the vaccine, I should say, that there's other factors that are causing the vaccinated to die less frequently of anything than the unvaccinated. Could be a healthy, so-called healthy user bias or healthy vaccine effect, or it could be, as Norman Fenton has, uh, has argued at length, uh, that it's a classification uh, issue of of who who they count as vaccinated as unvaccinated it could be it could be anything the point is we don't know what it is but we just you just look at the data you look at the way of of cross checking verifying the data of which this is it of this is a key one and and clearly uh, these estimates are not uh, these estimates of vaccine effectiveness can't be sound. For some reason, the ONS don't then conclude that therefore their estimate of vaccine effectiveness must be must be junk. Uh, they they still published the the document, so they've gone. Those those estimates have gone out into the public realm, and they'll get quoted. They'll get quoted as skeptics, and they'll get they'll get they'll get used they'll get used around. They might even get get used to to show that the vaccines are supposedly the elixir of life. Uh, and reduce your risk of dying of anything by, by, by half. But clearly that's not the correct way of using this data. And what the ONS should have done was said, this means that these estimates should not be, uh, should not be relied upon. Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be this podcast without a little bit on climate. So let's do this one from Chris, which is according to the work of two distinguished atmospheric scientists, net zero is completely pointless. Yeah, more more good stuff from some great uh, real scientists, as um, as we as we might say, emeritus professor uh, of Princeton from Princeton, William Happer, and Canadian physicist uh, professor William Van Weingarden, and uh, and they're as distinguished atmospheric physicists, and they say 
and they're, and they're making this argument. We've heard it a lot, um, lots of times before, but it's a really important argument that the that the effect of carbon dioxide uh, is uh, tails off. Um, it gets saturated as as more of it goes into the into the atmosphere. It's not the case that is that it's a linear relationship. That means it doesn't just go. You add you, if you double the amount of carbon dioxide, then you double its effect. That if the, it means that as as you double the amount of carbon dioxide um, each time or increase it, that the, that the effect of that on temperature levels off. Um, and it doesn't, and it doesn't affect as much. And they point out that this must uh, be true because the levels of carbon dioxide were far higher in the past, and the temperatures were not far greater. So this must be true to um, on one level, and um, and they just make the case that um, it's really true already, um, and that there's no, and, and in fact, carbon dioxide levels are at, as you're probably aware, Nick, they're at um, historical really low levels uh, compared to on a geological time scale there are no, uh, the, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is is, is on the uh, among the lowest it's, it's ever been in the um earth's earth history so um there's there'd be no real harm they say in adding more because carbon dioxide is uh, is great for plants you know and is great for life carbon dioxide is necessary for life and plants to uh, to exist and to breathe so is it really a poisonous gas um is it really a a pollutant, something that we need to, to, to worry about. Well, only if it's going to cause catastrophic warming, uh, but really the evidence for that is paper thin. Yeah, it's all a scam, mate. Um, <laughs> I just thought, I thought I'd end your really... <laughs> that's the other way yeah, of putting it. I thought I'd end your very technical analysis with my layman's take. <laughs> all right, thanks for all those, Will, and no doubt we'll be catching up with you again next week. Brill, thanks, Nick. This is a personal note from Thor. Hey there, fellow skeptic. What I'm going to share with you now is one of the many Thor, please keep me anonymous, but LinkedIn messages that I've received since the world went mad in March 2020. This message is from a director of an energy services business who went on to engage me in developing his team's strategic presentation capability. Quote, Thor, I've watched and read your posts. I think you're about as spot on for a non-brainwashed dummy as a regular soul can be. We are being hoaxed daily. I cannot often like, comment, because the world has indeed been hoaxed and I still need to work closely with guys who are absolutely lost, unquote. If you or your business might benefit from an advisor who's very much not brainwashed, someone who will help you create a positive mental framework and then take useful action, no matter how lost the world may be, let's talk. The first step is to connect with me on linkedin.com slash in slash four halt, or you can WhatsApp me uh, by using my phone number plus four four seven nine zero six three two one five nine three. That's plus four four seven nine zero six three two one five nine three. And that number will be in the blurb beneath this podcast. Skoll. P.S. Please do connect, even if you don't need my services, because I'd like to stay in touch with you, my fellow skeptic. LinkedIn.com slash in slash Thorholt. All right. Thanks to Thor as ever. Now I thought we'd do an occasional section that we sometimes like to do, which is Birdwatch. And I thought we'd do Birdwatch this week, Toby, because it was quite a big one. It was uh, Peter Hitchens, who's a great man, of course, getting attacked by a Twitter mob for his article about the Nazis, where he said they were left-wing, which I didn't think was a particularly 
controversial claim anymore. I mean, you may disagree with it, but it's not particularly new to call them left-wing. They were famously called national socialists, although he didn't use that as part of his argument. He did say things like they hated Christianity and deliberately set children against their parents. Big theme this week. They imposed penal taxes on the middle class and attracted communists to their ranks. They wrecked Germany's schools, insisting, sound familiar, that they taught mad dogmas instead of proper knowledge. No doubt some will point out the Nazis were also appalling and murderous racial bigots. That's true, but so was Stalin, who was preparing an anti-Semitic purge just before his death in 1953. And he made various other claims along those lines. And there's been some mad responses, including one guy calling him a uh, Holocaust revisionist, which is an insane claim. And there's been lots of lefties saying that he's trying to nicify the Nazis or or he's saying they're not, because to lefties, they don't think that they're evil. (laughs) Whereas Hitchens is saying, you're scum and so are the Nazis. But they think that he's sort of trying to tone down the Nazis because they're saying saying the left wing as if that's saying they were good. He's like, no, no, I'm saying you're all bad. But um, he's been attacked by all kinds of things. To me, and I'm just a layman on these issues, it's almost, as I am on almost everything, it's almost irrelevant because communism and fascism are obviously quite similar in that they're collectivist utopian ideologies and clearly nothing like English conservatism or American conservatism, which is based on English conservatism anyway. And I was talking to somebody other day, even a personal, my personal trainer friend I was talking to the other day, he's not English, but he, he, he completely grasped this. He's like, you know, he just said, yeah, conservatism and nothing, nothing like, but actually he's Italian. So that might be why he actually knows a bit about the history of, of fascism, but this is such an absurd claim and we've we've seen it with the Gary Lineker thing. People want to tie conservatism to Nazism. So, of course, they get very riled when Hitchens says something like this. But it, is it such a wild claim to say the Nazis were actually left-wing? I don't think it is such a wild claim. And um, and actually, you know, even if you exclude the death toll from the Holocaust, it remains true that um, hard left ideologies have led to more people been being murdered than hard right ideologies certainly in the 20th century I and mean, i think the estimate of the death toll in communist china and communist russia um vary but um uh, the general consensus is that it's somewhere around 100 million 100 million people murdered um uh, and that is more than the number of people that were murdered by the Nazis, um, and uh, uh, yeah, th- but for some reason, you know, the 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 uh, the link between um, murderous communist regimes and left wing politics um, is always disputed. It never lands. It's never a reason to stop declaring that you are a communist or a literal communist. Uh, whereas the link between the supposed link, the supposed continuity between hard right ideology and conservatism is taken as given by the left. And so, of course, they're going to be wound up, trolled by Hitchens saying, oh, no, um, actually, the Nazis were left wing. Um, it's like um, completely throwing them through a loop. It just doesn't compete, compute. As you say, some of them process it. Some of them hear it as making an excuse for the Nazis as opposed to trying to demonize leftists, which is a bizarre response. Yeah, that, that Daniela Nadge person who's one of the most deranged people on Twitter had this ridiculous tweet where she said, left-wing people don't annihilate disabled people or burn books. They also typically don't build concentration camps. It's like, no, they're called gulags. They've got a different name. <laughs> and the idea they don't burn books is well, completely absurd. Anyway, everyone pointed out how mad that was. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, it was an interesting debate. I, I mean, Hitchens, you know, he does, 
obviously he's quite often controversial because he says things that are not received wisdom or popular opinion. But yeah, it was mad to see how how attacked he was for that. But yeah, lefties have to keep this fiction going in order to you know sustain their nonsense. All right, we pretty much agree on that, so there probably won't be much much debate. Shall we do everyone's favourite section, which is peak woke? So I don't have actually loads of peak wokes this week, Toby. I have one of them, which is about this person who identified as Asian. I need to find the exact uh, quote. So this was a uh, Michelle Yeoh who won the Oscar for Best Actress making history as the first person who identifies as Asian to win the award. This came from NPR, who tweeted that. And then Twitter added this context card saying this tweet is factually correct, but missing context to explain wording. Merle Oberon was the first Asian woman nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1935, but Oberon hid her heritage to avoid discrimination, whereas Joe is open about her Asian heritage. So am I wrong calling this a peak word? Because when you hear identifies as Asian, you think that's incredibly stupid. But was it just to draw a distinction? between this previous person who was an Asian that had won it, but didn't admit it. it. Really, it's just saying the first person who's out as an Asian, but maybe that would have sounded even weirder. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's trying to preserve some sense of this being a, you know, uh, uh, an advance, a sign of progress. Um, people initially claimed it was a sign of progress because they thought mistakenly that Michelle Yeoh was the first Asian to win an Oscar. When, it, when people pointed out, no, actually, Merle Oberon won an Oscar and she was, you know, of dual heritage, but I think uh, one of her parents was born in Salon, as it then was. Um, uh, uh, th- th- so then then the, the, the difference was that, okay, Michelle Yeoh was the first person to identify as an Asian who's won an Oscar, but that did make, I think, Twitter sounds slightly ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it's just like, you know, it was like a, an attempt to score woke points, which then blew up in the face of whoever was claiming she was the first Asian to win an Oscar. All right. And um, did you have any Pete Wokes, Toby? Well, I was going to just, I mean, we debated beforehand whether to discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, in the kind of body of the program or whether to do it as a Pete Woke. And we, I think, concluded that neither of us um, possess a huge amount of (laughs) expertise about the international banking system. So, best to put it in peak woke. But um, obviously, one of the um, striking things about Silicon Valley Bank is that it was unbelievably woke. So um, it's I think it's um, what its chief risk officer in Europe um, uh, was, um, uh, uh, you know, a a working class queer person of color, um, and seemed to devote all her time to promoting kind of um, affinity groups within the bank and promoting various awareness months and awareness days and organizing training of various kinds, but didn't seem to be doing her actual job, which was to make sure the um, bank itself wasn't taking too many risks. Um, Someone sent me uh, quite a funny meme earlier of... um, which has a picture of four women, uh, and these four women comprise the investment committee uh, of Silicon Valley Bank. And the text is, why is all the focus on SVB's failure of losing all their investments and not on the accomplishment of having the only all-female investment committee in the banking industry? Pay attention to what really matters, empowerment and diversity. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it had a kind of a rating for its um, environmental, social, and governance policies. Um, it spent uh, what five billion dollars 
Uh, oh no, it, 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 had, it had announced it would invest $5 billion by 2027 to support sustainability efforts. I mean, it couldn't have been more woke, um, you know, by every metric. Um, uh, and yet, it's um, it's collapsed, um, and uh, seemingly they they kept their eye off. They took their eye off the ball and didn't pay attention to what really mattered, um, and got into all kinds of difficulty because they were too busy virtue signaling. Yeah, and you're right that really we should have discussed it in the main body of the show, given that it may precipitate the collapse of the global financial system. People are working <laughs> to avoid that now. We, we could have a crash that's way bigger than twenty uh, two thousand eight. Sorry, but. Yes, I did share this article in the Daily Skeptic. Uh, it was a comment on the piece in the Mail, which is suggesting they're very woke. I mean, they didn't have a chief risk officer between April 22 and January 23. And then the the uh, chief risk officer in the UK was was this incredibly woke person you're talking about. And she said things like, as a queer person of colour and a first generation immigrant from a working class background, there were not many role models for me to see growing up. I feel privileged to help spread awareness of lived queer experiences partner with charitable organizations and above all create a sense of community for our LGBTQ plus employees and allies. So yeah, I think it, you can also ridicule our side and say, I, I realized later with this article saying like, you know, the idea that they were too woke, that's why it's happened. It's obviously far more complicated than that and involves financial things that are not my area of expertise. It's not as simple as they were focused on that. So they weren't doing banking. It's just a sort of amusing aside that of how absurd these companies have become. But I'm, I'm not suggesting that's the reason for it, no. Um, but um, I suppose, I suppose, uh, yeah. No, I don't think it's the reason for it. But I suppose it's it's an irony that um, this bank and its most senior employees and members of its board um, were so keen to signal that they were compassionate people who cared about equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, whilst kind of seemingly not being responsible stewards of the, you know, assets under their control and um, neglecting all kinds of risks that actually expose their customers, some of whom I imagine belong to historically disadvantaged groups, to bankruptcy and ruin. Um, It just seems like, did you really care that much? Are you really such a nice, compassionate person if, you know, you've You've, you've essentially precipitated the collapse of the global banking industry um, by being crap at your job. Um, but yeah, um, I agree. It's probably a bit of a red herring. Do you have any more Pete Wilkes, Toby? Yeah, no, I, I don't know if you saw this one, Nick. So um, in Wales, um, so Welsh, Welsh decolonizers are targeting English oppressors. So I think uh, yet Wales are claiming to be, um, to, ha- to having been colonized um, by the English. Um, and they're, they're, they're doing now an audit of various statues and monuments, which they claim glorify colonialism and slavery. Um, and uh, so um, uh, a string of castles, for instance, built by Edward I, um, uh, <laughs> are now kind of being put under the kind of woke microscope to see if there's any justification for not immediately raising them to the ground because they are a symbol of English colonial oppression. I just, it did seem like the kind of reductio ad absurdum of the kind of decolonization agenda that Wales is now claiming that this means they have to tear down any statue or monument or even a castle um, which commemorates or was built by an English person. Yeah, I saw that. I put it in the uh, Daily Skeptic News Roundup. That is definitely another contender for peak woke... I think I'd probably win weak poke because of the 
ambiguity around my my nomination. But um, Toby, uh, we we unfortunately don't have uh, Dr. Peterson here this week because he he looked at a piece of broccoli and had to go to a, a Russian hospital to uh, deal with the the <laughs> result of that, and it made him too ill. So I thought I might just do some of our reviews. And sorry if I've been a bit low energy this week, guys. I'm still struggling with my throat a bit and not feeling great. So, um, but I thought we'd do a few reviews. Uh, someone's written more, more, more funny, informed and topical with a welcome dollop of balance thrown in. Thank you. Good old dollop of balance. I thought you'd like this one, Toby. Top T. Can't get enough. Toby, the top T <laughs> and Nick, Will and all the contributors looking forward to the, oh, the 20th. That, that means the live show, which we still haven't sorted. I might even risk public transport for the first time since they started trying to shame anyone daring to show their face in public. Keep up the amazing work, guys. So I've stopped reading the ones that are too nice about Mito, but I'm reading the ones now that call you oh, that's very top T. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so someone um, else... They, did, you, did you have to go and trawl back through all kind of 27 podcast comments <laughs> to get the top T comment? That was it was a bit <laughs> tough. So Nick and Toby dissect culture, laughs and intelligent discussion of the mad world we inhabit from cancel culture to Jordan Peterson's ag- agony ant spot, what's not to like. That's Barney McGrew 99. Thank you, Barney McGrew 99. So I just want to read one more. <laughs> this one pissed me off. Great material, but far too long. <laughs> this podcast is funny and informative, <laughs> but it's far too long and needs to be edited. I mean, imagine that. Like, oh, I'm sorry, this free product that you, you're admitting is great is too long for it. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, is there it, is it too much free caviar at the buffet? Like, I mean, imagine that's your argument. It's, a, it's free, and you're, say, and you're saying it's great. You're saying great material, funny and informative, but it's too much of it. How about just stop Just stop it halfway, listen to the rest later, then it's, it's as if it's half as long. I mean, what? Yeah, I think, what? Yeah, I think, we, did, I think we, we, did, we did worry a bit, to be fair, at one point about um, the podcast running on a bit, and maybe we should try and keep it to about a tight 60 minutes. But then we realized that actually the long, the longer we went, the more downloaded the podcast became. So, you know, people were voting with their thumbs, as it were. And um, people seem to like the longer version. People love so the longer episode, except this long. one guy. You can't please everyone. But I love it. I mean, they give us three stars. Everyone. I mean, we've still got a 4.9 average, don't worry. But it's like, I just think that's so amazing. Like, you can't please people, can you? We're laboring every week. Did it at Christmas. We do it when I'm ill. We do it when you're ill. We we do it when you're in the shed. We do it when you're at GB News, and they just they just don't, you know. And it's they admit it's cool, but they say it's too long. I mean, is there anything that people can't complain about? I mean, I'm just stunned. But anyway, thanks for the review, <laughs> and at least they said it was good. And um, yeah, that's all I've got on that. Any any uh, plugs, Toby? Yeah, no. I just wanted to say that um, we're looking to employ someone we're I think probably going to call an associate editor to um, help us out at the weekend to give me and Nick and Will a break um, and um, we can employ you properly with you know benefits and a pension contribution national insurance and um, it's very rewarding work you'll be part of this this tight-knit daily skeptic team um, the hours can be a bit antisocial um, so um, we're looking for someone who can work weekends um, and can work quite late because we don't we don't we don't publish our our night our, our news roundup usually until after midnight and also to stand in for us during public holidays when one of us needs a break. Um, so um, very rewarding work, properly paid. You'd be a fully fledged employee, albeit part time employee. And if you're familiar with WordPress, you like what we do, you think you could. You could you could contribute to the site, help us find stories, summarize them, do the news roundup, help us post on our social media platforms. 
do get in touch. Um, email me at thedailyskeptic at gmail.com and put in the subject, put in the subject um, uh, header um, associate editor so I can identify the applications easily and, and do send your CV and I'll be in touch. Yeah, and you'll be able to come to the Christmas dinner and uh, you won't have to work with any workaholics at all. So that's a great, great thing about <laughs> the role. So uh, yeah, do that. And if you feel like it, you could go and listen to my other podcast called The Current Thing. I've just had a good episode out with Jeff Norcott. We touched on some of the things we talked about today, actually, the sex education bill he was very concerned about. Very interesting, fun episode. So check out The Current Thing if you want even more Nick Dixon. But if you already think this is too long, then, of course, you might not be doing that because <laughs> that one is also quite long, though not as long as this one. But I think that's everything for now. We'll sort the live show. We've just got so many things going on, guys. And I, th- I believe that's everything. So until next week, as ever, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.